You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for downloading the 195th episode of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. In an excellent book of essays on the 1862 Maryland campaign, edited by Gary Gallagher, one of the selections was written by A. Wilson Green, who at that time was the staff historian at Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park. In his essay, Green looked at George McClellan's generalship during the campaign and at Antietam. He says, When evaluating the conduct of a battle, it is important to remember the unique function of each level of command. In simplest terms, the ranking officer bears responsibility for bringing his units to the battlefield at the right times and in the right places. He must communicate his objectives to his subordinates and be prepared to provide personal inspiration at crucial moments. The actual combat is directed by subordinates, who, consistent with their overall mission, must react to changing battlefield conditions. The best chieftains create a climate in which boldness and innovation are valued commodities. The best executive officers exercise these qualities. For anyone who studies the fighting at Antietam on September 17, 1862, it's obvious there's a sharp contrast between the command abilities displayed by and battlefield choices made by George McClellan and Robert E. Lee. In fact, the contrast is striking. Robert E. Lee had set up his headquarters in a tent in a grove of oak trees on the west side of Sharpsburg. Today, there's a historical marker at the spot, just alongside Route 34. But Lee left his headquarters early in the battle to be near the fighting, and he had been close enough to the front line to intercept stragglers. One of them had just killed a pig and was scurrying toward the rear to cook it. Lee exploded in a rare outburst of fury and ordered the shirker sent to Stonewall Jackson to be shot. Stonewall, though, thought it more practical to let the Yankees carry out the sentence, and so he thrust the man into the hottest combat in front of the West Woods, where, so the story goes, the fellow redeemed himself and earned a reprieve, thus losing his pig but saving his bacon. On another occasion, Lee was so absorbed in observing the nearby fighting that he failed to recognize his own son. 
At Antietam, Lee's youngest son, 18-year-old Robert E. Lee Jr., was serving as a private in the Rockbridge Artillery. He later remembered how, quote, General Lee and his staff galloped up and from this point of vantage scanned the movements of the enemy and of our forces. The general reined in traveler close by my gun, not 15 feet from me. General Lee dropped his glass to his side and seeing a much begrimed artilleryman, sponge staff in hand, said, Well, my man, what can I do for you? I replied, Why, General, don't you know me? He, of course, at once recognized me and was very much amused at my appearance and most glad to see that I was safe and well. Dialed in to the ebb and flow of the fighting, Lee displayed a truly impressive ability to anticipate events and move units around the battlefield so that the reinforcements arrived at just the right spot at just the right time. That morning, when the only action taking place was over on the left end of the Confederate line, that is on the northern part of the battlefield, Lee decided to gamble by weakening the quiet southern or right end of his line in order to bolster Stonewall Jackson's hard-pressed troops up around the West Woods. And so from the right end of his line, Lee pulled the small division of John Walker and also Ty Anderson's brigade and sent them to aid Stonewall. Lee also committed his last battlefield reserves. As y'all recall, the divisions of Lafayette McClaws and Richard H. Anderson had only just arrived from Harper's Ferry that morning, but after giving them just a short time to rest, Lee sent them into the battle. McClaws joined Walker and Tyke Anderson on the march north to the West Woods. Meanwhile, Richard Anderson went to the center of the Confederate line to support D.H. Hill's division along the sunken road. And so, as Rich said just a moment ago, because Robert E. Lee was attuned to the battle, anticipating events and acting decisively, his reinforcements would arrive at just the right spot at just the right time. George McClellan, in contrast to Lee, had remained at his headquarters at the Pry House over on the east side of Antietam Creek, far removed from the scene of the fierce combat that raged on the northern part of the battlefield that morning. If you visit the battlefield today, you can visit the Philip Pry House and step onto the modern observation deck that overlooks the open ground over to the north of Sharpsburg and see the battlefield over there, across the creek, much as McClellan and his staff did. On the day of the battle, next to Little Mac stood his friend and confidant, Major General Fitzjohn Porter, who commanded the Fifth Corps, which was being held in reserve east of the Antietam. Telescopes had been set up for the two generals, so they could observe the fighting in the distance. A staff officer recalled how Porter peered through one of the telescopes and, quote, studied the field with unremitting attention, scarcely leaving his post during the whole day. His observations he communicated to the commander by nods, signs, or in words so low-toned and brief that the nearest bystanders had but little benefit from them. When not engaged with Porter, McClellan stood in a soldierly attitude, intently watching the battle and smoking with the utmost apparent calmness. Everything was as quiet and punctilious as a drawing-room ceremony. End quote. Peering through a telescope may have given McClellan some detached sense of the ebb and flow of the combat going on over across the creek, 
but for first-hand information regarding the drama unfolding before him, he had to rely on signal flags and couriers. However, neither method was adequate to keep up with the rapidly changing circumstances of the fighting. Because he remained personally disconnected from the action, and because he evidently had no clearly thought out or clearly communicated plan for the battle, George McClellan rather quickly lost control of events during the crucial hours early on the morning of September 17th. As the attacker at Antietam, Little Mac initially held the initiative, but he squandered that advantage because, as we said before, we don't think he ever viewed Antietam as a battle that was his to win, but instead he saw it as a fight that he couldn't afford to lose. That mindset, along with his detachment, and the fact he didn't have a clearly thought out or clearly communicated battle plan, meant that from the moment the fighting started on Wednesday morning over across the creek, McClellan let the initiative slip through his fingers as he responded belatedly to events rather than initiating them. By the time Bull Sumner recklessly led Sedgwick's division into the West Woods, McClellan's battle plan, whatever it might have been, was obviously already in shambles. To start the battle, Hooker that morning had pitched into the north end of the Confederate line alone and unsupported with the First Corps, despite the fact Mansfield's Twelfth Corps was nearby. This was a dreadful blunder. Whatever Little Mac intended to happen here on this part of the field, Hooker and Mansfield should have attacked in concert. McClellan's handling of Sumner's II Corps was questionable as well. Sumner was ready to cross the Antietam an hour before sunrise, but had to wait at the Pry House, unable to see Little Mac, for more than an hour and a half. It was only at 7.20, after Hood's counterattack rolled out of the West Woods, that Sumner received orders to cross the Antietam to support the Federal right. It's worth noting that in finally issuing those orders to Sumner, McClellan was simply reacting to events rather than working proactively to try to shape the course of the battle. After he received his orders, it would still take about 90 minutes for Sumner's troops to march to the scene of the action, and even when he received the orders to advance, Sumner could only start off with two of his three divisions, since McClellan insisted on holding back Israel Richardson's divisions, division east of the creek until its place could be taken by a unit from Porter's Fifth Corps. McClellan's refusal to let Sumner take all three of his divisions across the Antietam makes little sense, really, except that Little Mac seemed to be thinking more in terms of what Lee could do to him instead of what he could do to Lee. After the war, McClellan would write, quote, General Lee and I knew each other well. I had the highest respect for his ability as a commander and knew that he was a general not to be trifled with or carelessly afforded an opportunity of striking a fatal blow. End quote. This image of Lee seems to have so impressed, so overawed Little Mac, that it affected his ability to evaluate battlefield realities. At any rate, as we talked about in the last episode, Bull Sumner led his two divisions, commanded by John Sedgwick and William French, across the Antietam. Near the East Woods, Sumner paused to deploy Sedgwick's division. French was about 20 minutes behind, but rather than waiting for French to come up, too, 
Sumner decided he had to act immediately. Bull Sumner's intention was to march straight across the battlefield with Sedgwick's three brigades, enter the West Woods, wheel left, and advance south, rolling down upon Sharpsburg and rolling up the Confederate defensive line. However, Sumner developed this plan with no understanding of the actual tactical situation. Hooker had been wounded and was being carried to the rear and could be of no help. Alpheus Williams was commanding the 12th Corps after Mansfield was mortally wounded, and Williams tried to brief Sumner on the situation, but the old general was in too much of a hurry and brushed him off. And, as you guys will recall from the last show, Sumner not only deployed Sedgwick's troops in crowded formations that left them little room to maneuver, but he failed to scout the terrain, failed to deploy skirmishers to his front, and failed to provide for proper supports to the left or right of his attack. By failing to take these normal precautions, Sumner led Sedgwick's men to disaster. No sooner had Sedgwick's division entered the West Woods than it happened. A murderous blast of musketry struck the exposed Federal left. So sudden and furious was the attack, so overwhelming and perfectly timed, that the Yankees who survived later swore that they had marched into a carefully planned enemy ambush there in the West Woods. But in fact, Sumner had unknowingly been on a collision course with the reinforcements Robert E. Lee had sent to aid Stonewall Jackson. McClaw's division and Tig Anderson's brigade led the devastating Confederate flank attack, supported by part of John Walker's division. They were joined by Stonewall's last uncommitted troops, led by Jubal Early. The Federal commanders, caught completely by surprise, desperately tried to pivot their regiments to the left to face this fierce enemy onslaught from the south. But with their brigade lines so close together, the maneuver was impossible. Soon the Confederate fire was coming from three directions, west, south, and east, as the rebels started to work their way around the Federals' flanks. Artillery fire also pounded them, as Jeb Stuart brought forward batteries to pummel the hapless Yankees at close range. Caught in an impossible situation, some Federal units broke and fled, while others stubbornly withdrew in good order, but all had to retreat northward in the face of the overwhelming Confederate attack. In the span of about 20 minutes of brutal combat, almost half of Sedgwick's division, over 2,200 men, were dead, wounded, or missing. Casualties among the attacking Confederates amounted to less than a 1,000 men. After a half mile or so, the rebels' pursuit finally ended at a makeshift line of Union artillery and First Corps troops who had rallied here after their early morning fight. In the face of this line, the Confederates broke off their pursuit and retired back to the West Woods. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. 
To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And that's pretty much where we left things at the end of the last episode. To follow what happens next, we'll need to return to the area around the Dunker Church, and we'll also need to visit a new sector in the center of the Confederate line along the Sunken Road. What we're going to do is use the rest of this show to talk about what happened at the Dunker Church, and then we're going to save the Sunken Road for the next episode. Right. Well, you guys will remember how we previously talked about the 125th Pennsylvania of the 12th Corps, which had gained a lodgment in the West Woods right around the Dunker Church. And nearby, just over to the east of the church, also from the 12th Corps, were Division Commander Brigadier General George S. Green's two brigades, led by Colonel Hector Tyndale and Colonel Henry Stainrook. We talked about how the rookies of the 125th had held their lonely salient around the church for a while, but then the Pennsylvanians were attacked and overwhelmed and forced to retreat in disorder. This happened at about the same time that Sedgwick's division was advancing into the West Woods and meeting with disaster, just to the north of the 125th position around the church. When the 125th Pennsylvania had broken and fled toward the East Woods, South Carolinians of Brigadier General Joseph Kershaw's brigade from Lafayette McClaw's division had pursued the fleeing Yankees, but heavy fire from a Union battery and Green's infantry had checked Kershaw's advance and forced him to break off his pursuit. At 10 a.m., Green's Federals and their artillery supports were tested again, this time by the second of John Walker's brigades of Confederates. As y'all recall, Robert E. Lee had ordered Walker's division to come over from the Confederate right to aid Stonewall Jackson. And while Walker's other brigade had continued north through the West Woods to take part in the devastating attack on Sedgwick's division, this brigade, under Colonel Van H. Manning, had peeled off to the right to help drive off the Yankees that were just to the east of the Dunker Church. Those Yankees that were just to the east of the Dunker Church were Green's troops and their artillery supports. Tyndale's brigade was on the right, while Stainrook's was on the left. Smoke from the incessant musketry and cannon fire blanketed the battlefield, making it difficult for Green's men to make out the Dunker Church, which lay less than 200 yards west of their position. But then, through the smoke, the Federals saw a line of rebels charge out from behind the church. 
Three of Manning's regiments dashed out of the West Woods, quote, in gallant style, as Walker described it. With the 46th North Carolina on the left, the 30th Virginia in the center, and the 48th North Carolina on the right, the Confederates swarmed out of the woods and across the Hagerstown Turnpike, heading straight for Green's line of Federals. Green's men let the charging rebels approach within 70 yards, and then the Union soldiers unleashed a killing volley. Their musketry and blasts of canister from Captain John A. Tompkins' battery of the 1st Rhode Island Light Artillery tore the Confederate line to shreds. An officer in the 7th Ohio reported that, quote, the enemy fell like grass before the mower. And a man in the 102nd New York remembered it as the worst slaughter he witnessed in the entire course of the war, saying, quote, it seemed as if whole companies were wiped out of existence. The federal fire was ferocious, knocking down North Carolinians and Virginians by the dozens. The 30th Virginia was shattered, losing 160 of the 230 men it had taken into the charge. Colonel Manning was severely wounded and carried to the rear. The survivors of the rebel assault fled back across the turnpike and all the way through the West Woods before they could be rallied. With a cheer, the Federals stormed after the retreating Confederates. As Tyndale's and Stainrook's men advanced, it wasn't long before two regiments on their right, the 13th New Jersey and Purnell's Legion of Maryland Infantry, came up from the cornfield and east woods in support. And, just an FYI, but the commander of the 13th New Jersey here was Colonel Ezra Carman. After the war, Carmen corresponded with and interviewed hundreds of other veterans of Antietam, compiling a history of not just the battle, but the entire campaign. And Carmen's monumental work is still considered an essential resource for anyone studying the Battle of Antietam or the 1862 Maryland campaign. Exactly. At any rate, as the Federals pursued the retreating rebels across the Hagerstown Turnpike and past the Dunker Church and into the West Woods, Green aggressively pushed a battle line 200 yards beyond the church and also posted several regiments along the fence at the southern edge of the woodlot. And so for the second time that morning, the Yankees had a foothold in the West Woods. This was potentially the most dangerous one yet for the Confederates, as Green, realizing he had driven a wedge into the enemy line, sent back an urgent call for reinforcements. We just wanted to um, hit the pause button here. Because we wanted to remind you that while this action is going on here around the Dunker Church, there were also some other things happening at pretty much the same time. For one, while Green's Federals were seizing their foothold in the West Woods there around the church, Sedgwick's division was being routed and driven off through the northern part of the woods. Meanwhile, Bull Sumner's 2nd Division, led by William French, which had been trailing 20 minutes behind, didn't follow Sedgwick, but instead was going off to attack the center of the Confederate line, where D.H. Hill's men held the sunken road. That's what we'll be talking about in the next episode. And we just wanted to mention also 
that at 10 minutes after 9 o'clock, nearly two hours after he had directed Bull Sumner to cross the Antietam to aid the federal right, McClellan finally sent orders to Ambrose Burnside, down on the federal left, to move against the lower bridge with the Ninth Corps. The wording of Little Mac's dispatch made clear why he had delayed sending these orders to Burnside. The message said, quote, General Franklin's command is within one mile and a half of here. General McClellan desires you to open your attack, end quote. In other words, only when Little Mac could be assured that Franklin and the Sixth Corps were arriving on the scene from Pleasant Valley would he commit Burnside's troops to the battle. Okay, so anyway, a lot of moving parts here with regard to the story, but now back to our regularly scheduled programming. As Tyndale's and Stainrook's Federals charged past the Dunker Church and into the West Woods, they didn't halt until they were about 200 yards into the woodlot. Major Orrin Crane of the 7th Ohio later said that, quote, We charged them in a heavy piece of woods, driving them out of it, capturing a large number of prisoners, and made terrible havoc to their ranks, covering the ground with the slain, many of them officers. The 5th and 7th Ohio didn't remain there in the woods very long because they were nearly out of ammunition. They fell back to the east, across the Hagerstown Turnpike. The 13th New Jersey and Purnell's Legion slipped into the positions just evacuated by the two Ohio regiments. They joined the 28th Pennsylvania in forming the right of the federal line there in the woods, while the 111th Pennsylvania, 3rd Maryland, and 102nd New York were on the left. The extremely capable George Sears Green, who was 61 years old at Antietam, but still full of fight, considered his foothold there in the West Woods to be of critical importance. He had already requested and received reinforcements in the form of the 13th New Jersey and Purnell's Legion, bringing his total up to about 1,350 men. When the 13th New Jersey's commander, Ezra Carman, expressed concern about the vulnerable right end of the federal line in the woods, Green told him not to worry. No one having told him otherwise, Green assumed that Sedgwick's division was up in the west woods to his right. Green had no idea that Sumner had led Sedgwick's division to disaster, and that now only rebels occupied the woods to the north and west of his position. But when the worried Ezra Carman sent another message, Green rode over to the right side of his line. Although no friendly troops could actually be seen anywhere beyond his right, Green continued to insist that only Federal units occupied the woodlot off that way, and so under no circumstances should anyone fire in that direction. But as Green then rode back over toward the left end of his line, he encountered a member of Bull Sumner's staff who mentioned that Sedgwick's entire command had been routed and driven from the field. Didn't you know it? the staff officer asked. According to Ezra Carman, Green's reply, quote, was more picturesquely sulfurous than polite. 
Green had hardly digested this disturbing news than he was suddenly attacked on both flanks. Acting independently of each other, two Confederate units, a quarter of a mile apart, had unknowingly achieved a nice coordination and struck opposite ends of Green's line at the same time. The commander of John Walker's other brigade, Colonel Matthew W. Ransom, sent the 49th North Carolina toward the Dunker Church, striking from the area of the West Woods where Green had assumed Sedgwick to be. These Confederates surprised the Maryland troops of Purnell's Legion and then caught the Greenhorns of the 13th New Jersey in the flank, sending the Yankees flying out of the timber and across the Hagerstown Turnpike toward the safety of the East Woods. When the commander of the next Federal Regiment in line, the 28th Pennsylvania, heard the rebel yell coming from his right and spotted the fleeing Jerseymen and Marylanders, he ordered a withdrawal. The resulting uproar and confusion was enough to stampede the rest of Green's command, and in a matter of minutes, the Union foothold in the West Woods was erased. Meanwhile, south of the woods, Colonel John R. Cook was ordering the 3rd Arkansas and 27th North Carolina to charge the two Union guns just then going into battery near the church to support Green. The 29-year-old Cook was yet another example of a family divided by the war. He and his sister, Jeb Stewart's wife, stood with Virginia in 1861, while their father, the veteran Old Army Cavalry Officer Philip St. George Cook, remained loyal to the Union. As luck would have it, Cook's North Carolinians and Arkansans drove forward against that two-gun section of Union artillery just as Green's line was breaking. The Confederates charged quickly overran and captured one of the Yankee guns. As the other enemy guns successfully skedaddled out of harm's way, the 27th North Carolina and 3rd Arkansas joined Ransom's men in their pursuit of Green's retreating Federals. Acting 12th Corps Commander Alpheus Williams saw the sudden retreat of Green's troops and admitted they, quote, came scampering to the rear in great confusion, end quote. That wasn't the end of the story, though, for Williams continued with his account, writing, quote, The rebels followed with a yell, but three or four of our batteries being in position, they were received with a tornado of canister. Ransom's and Cook's Confederates were brought up short by this deadly cannon fire, with Ransom's North Carolinians being especially hard hit and suffering heavy casualties before they fell back to the safety of the West Woods. Cook's troops, the 27th North Carolina and 3rd Arkansas, will actually figure into next week's episode about the Sunken Road. Of course, you guys will have to wait for that, but with the retreat of Green's Federals and the repulse of Ransom's North Carolinians, the major fighting here on the northern end of the battlefield came to a close. Although sporadic skirmishing and artillery fire would continue in this sector, the focus of the battle had already shifted about a half mile to the southeast, to the center of the rebel line, where D.H. Hill's men held the sunken road which was going to more than earn a dreadful new name, Bloody Lane. As Rich said, as the fighting shifted to the sunken road, it marked the end of the Federal effort to smash Lee's left flank. 
For about five hours, the two sides had traded heavyweight blows in a compact area bordered generally by the Hagerstown Turnpike and Smoketown Road, and only timely reinforcements and extraordinarily hard fighting had pre- prevented a complete Confederate collapse here on this front. By the time the major combat on this part of the battlefield came to an end, around 10.30 or so, almost 23,000 Federals, all told, had been thrown into the fighting here, while Lee had been able to counter with just over 18,000. The result was a combined loss of nearly 14,000 men dead, wounded, or missing, 6,550 Federals, and 7,300 Confederates. In the fighting here north of the Sunken Road, Lee had lost 40% of those engaged, while the Federals had lost 29%. Sedgwick's division of the 2nd Corps sustained the highest losses and left about one in three of its men on the field, while on the Confederate side, William Wofford's brigade of Hood's division lost a staggering 64% of its men. Those numbers are shocking, but of course they aren't just numbers. They represent flesh-and-blood men. Some of you may recall Lieutenant Colonel Wilder Dwight of the 2nd Massachusetts. We shared previously how, as the 12th Corps was moving up to the front early on Wednesday morning, he'd started a letter to his mother. Well, Dwight was hit along the Hagerstown Turnpike and left behind as his regiment retreated to the shelter of the East Woods. As he was lying there, mortally wounded, he took that letter from his pocket and added a postscript stained with his own blood. Dearest Mother, I am wounded so as to be helpless. Goodbye, if so it must be. He died the next day. Also dying the next day was Sergeant John W. Franks of the 7th South Carolina of Kershaw's Brigade, who was mortally wounded by Federal artillery fire. Before he died on September 18th, Franks extracted a promise from his brother-in-law, John Wilhite, who was with him, to take care of his wife, Jane, and their two young children back home in South Carolina. Before retreating with the rest of the Confederate Army after the battle, Wilhite buried Franks in an unmarked grave. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is The Maryland Campaign of September 1862 by Ezra A. Carman, edited and annotated by Thomas G. Clemens. This edition of Carman's Study has been published in three volumes. The first deals with South Mountain, the second volume covers the Battle of Antietam, and the third book looks at the clash at the fort at Shepherdstown and the end of the campaign. It's a bit of an investment to get all three volumes, but we'd encourage you, if you're interested and have to choose just one, to get volume number two, which covers the battle. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. A quick shout-out to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Edgar and Alex. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to A History Podcast. 
Tracy and I do hope you join us again next time as we continue with the story of the Battle of Antietam. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.